Hey everyone, uh, my name is Tyler. Good morning. This is my wife Hannah, daughter May, and son Connor. Uh, please lift up your hearts for the reading of the Word of God. From the book of Hosea, chapter 11, verse 1 through 4. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. The more they were called, and the more they went away, and they kept sacrificing to the balls and burning offerings to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness and with bands of love, and I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws, and I bent down to them and fed them. And from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 2, verses 13 through 23. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother and departed by night to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill that the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been strict by the wise men, or tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all the region who were there for two, their two years or uh, older, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then it was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted by, uh, because they care no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard Archelaus was reigning over Judea, in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there, and being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. May God bless the reading of his word. Each Sunday of the Advent season, we light a candle in preparation for the arrival of Jesus. The light growing brighter every week with each additional candle. The four candles around the central one symbolizes the hope, love, joy, and peace Jesus brings to our lives. The Christ candle in the middle is lit on Christmas Eve, reminding us that Jesus is the light of the world, the radiance that conquers the darkness. Let us worship through the word that tells of him. Thank you, my friends. Well done. Well done. <clears throat> well, at this time, we want to go ahead and dismiss uh, the kids. You can head on out this way with Ms. Cheryl. She will lead you to your classes. Hope you have a wonderful day of it. Thank you for being in here with us this morning. Good to see you all. All right. Hey, nice hat. That is fantastic. I love it. <laughs> Good to see you guys. All right. <clears throat> Now, I imagine that you have, but have you ever gone on a trip? Have you ever been on a journey and come back different? 
than when you left. You left one way, but then you come back changed. You come back transformed. Imagine you have, I mean, because that's the way life works. Now, one Advent season a decade ago, I went on such a trip, and I didn't know it at the time, but I was driving head on into the land of lost. I was alone in my car. It was raining hard and fast. I was driving fast, and I was crying hard. I left on that trip one way, and then I came back another way. That day I traveled to the land of loss, you might say. It was just a few miles away, but that's where I went. Now just like many of us have taken a journey over the last few years, or maybe a number of journeys over the last few years into the land of loss, so too does Joseph today. Now this makes me think, by the way, of a little story called The Hobbit. Ever heard of The Hobbit? Uh, that story has a subtitle. Do you know what the subtitle is? There and Back Again. I know who said that. <laughs> there and Back Again. It's a brilliant title, really. What it tells us on the front end is that the main character, right, Bilbo Baggins, he's going to go on an adventure... And he's going to come back again, right? It's right there in the beginning. The question isn't if he'll come back. The question is how he will come back. The thing is, the Bilbo from page one, the little hobbit in his comfortable hole, he doesn't come back. A new Bilbo Baggins does. The journey changes him. He's transformed. His journey into various lands of loss, that includes trolls and dragons and and all sorts of things, very much changes him. There's loss, and it's not simply loss, there's much gain. The loss brings the gain. Now, today in our Advent passage, which we could call there and back again, Joseph is called into the land of loss to take his wife Mary and their infant son Jesus to a far away land. The Christmas story here at this point turns on a dime. So watch how we go now from this glorious mountaintop experience down into the valley, down into night, down into the shadow on the road to loss. Matthew 2 verse 13 says, Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt. And remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. Okay, well, if we just pick up the story here, it's kind of hard to make sense of this. We need to understand this first bit. Now when they had departed. Who? When who had departed? Well, if we back up in the story, we see it's the wise men. See, we had just read about a mountaintop glorious highlight moment for Jesus's family. A royal caravan comes from afar. They bring riches, incredible riches to Jesus and his family. And they worship this baby. They fall down on their faces and they worship this baby, the long-promised Savior of the world. 
And I can't imagine what it felt like when they left. Um, the, the excitement, um, the joy, the, the warmth in Mary and Joseph's hearts as they just experienced this, this grandeur and this hope that their child is worshipped as a king. What does, this, what does this mean for us? What is the path forward? And then suddenly things change. Overnight, quite literally. God speaks to Joseph in a dream and says, you need to get out of there. Danger is six miles away and on the way. See, six miles from Bethlehem, a tyrant was pacing his palace, anxious about his power, thinking cold thoughts, scheming to keep his control, scheming to keep his title. Jesus was in danger. You know, the story is so very human, isn't it? It's so very human. There's real threat. There's real threat here. Uh, I was reading this story uh, with, with one of my friends. Uh, many of you know him, with, with Pastor Laren. We were sitting around his fire pit this week, swapping Christmas verses and stories. And, and we read this, and, and it struck us both just um, how, how human this story is at this point. God in a manger, God on the run. No triumphalism here. Like no triumphalism, no bloated heroics. There's a real threat. There's real danger. God intervenes, but the reality of danger and human vulnerability is still present. There's this admixture of supernatural power entering into the world, but there's real human vulnerability and threat. And so the situation itself echoes the very essence or the nature of the incarnation. Jesus is fully God, but he's fully human, made of flesh and bone, born with fragile lungs and a fragile heart and needing to be fed, dependent upon a mother. Supernatural and natural blend powerfully here. Wonderful. Wonderful, isn't it? So let's keep reading. Verses 14 and 15. And he, that's Joseph, rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Okay, so while Joseph lay sleeping, six miles away from Bethlehem in Jerusalem, Herod was launching a murder raid to kill all the baby boys under the age of two. There's some darkness in the Christmas story, right? There's some darkness for sure. Now, given that Bethlehem was a small village, and back in Jesus' day, a, a very, very small village, many educated guesses, estimations place um, the, the possible death count of of these young ones, um, somewhere between a dozen to two or three, three dozen. So um, in our minds, we might think thousands upon thousands, but more realistically, um, given the size of this, this village, this little hamlet of Bethlehem, it was a smaller number. But whatever the number is, it was far too many, a terrible loss of life at the hands of Herod. 
And one of the things I think we should note here is that in Herod, we see that hate of God and hate of God's word and hate of God's promises ultimately leads to hate of other people when they threaten our control and that hate or that violence towards others in our heart translates to violence with our hands as we hurt other people. Love of God leads to love of other people. Hate of God and truth and goodness and beauty leads to hate of others when they threaten our kingdoms. And so the threat in the story is real. Evil is real and it, and it rages. It's, it's not token. It's not um, empty. It's real. It's there. It thrashes about, you know. It did then and <laughs> it does now. And so God tells Joseph, go. You've got to get out of Dodge. It is time to leave. And he does. And he does so under the cover of night. And the implication in the passage, the, the way the text is, is written in the original language, is that there's an urgency to it. It's like, now, get up now, go under the cover of night. There is an immediacy to this because the threat is real. And so the story turns on a dime from a glorious mountaintop peak down into the valley of the shadow of death. It changes in a moment. And isn't that how grief and loss enters into our life? It's like things are fine. And then suddenly, how can this be? God, how did this happen? Or we go into just like a numb mode trying to process what just happened because everything changed instantly. Now we can think of so many examples how everything has changed instantly. I'm sure some of them are popping up in your mind, right? March 2020, things changed overnight. Lives changed. Change, loss, grief, so often comes suddenly, at least to our experience. It might be there slowly growing, but we experience it so suddenly. Okay. So, so they go, try, try to... Try to get into this. They go from this incredible experience to having these riches delivered to them and their son being seen as royalty, feeling, feeling good, to suddenly being refugees. They are now refugees. They are on the run. They're flying. They're fleeing for their life to another country, cloak and dagger style. A couple things to consider here, I, I think, for us this morning. Uh, this is huge loss for Joseph and his family, isn't it? They leave their, their family. They leave their home. They leave their way of life. They leave their country all behind. They're refugees hunted by the authorities. They are technically now outlaws. They enter a life of hiding. It's something like an ancient witness protection program that God has designed for them. But take note, this loss is for gain. This loss is for gain. See, God uses the land of loss as a severe mercy to bring us gain. He's still in that business today. God uses the land of loss as a severe mercy to bring us gain. They become refugees not because God is cruel, not because God is absent, 
but because God knows the bigger picture, because God is kind, because God is present, because God is on the move, he is saving them through loss from an even greater loss. So like a doctor breaking a bone to reset it for proper healing, or like a firefighter who who lights a controlled fire in order to stop a raging wildfire in its tracks. God uses loss to lead to surprising gain. My friends, I I don't understand it. And I know it's so often full of painful confusion when we try to do the calculus of of the loss in our life. Because like when we're we're mired in the loss, when we're in the loss, we rightfully feel the grief and and hurt. So sometimes it's hard to see what, what he's actually doing in the grand scheme of things. And even if we can see what he's doing in the grand scheme of things, it still hurts. Right? Loss is is loss. But God can lead us into a loss that saves us from a greater loss. And like I said, I don't pretend to understand the calculus of it. I know many of your situations, and I have no clue why. But I do know the God who is above and overseen, and he's good. And he can redeem. I mean, he redeemed the cross, the torture device of the cruel Roman Empire. It's now the... The image of salvation. He can redeem these things. Also, we should note here um, that this is all to fulfill prophecy. Out of Egypt, I called my son. What is this about? What is this about? Um, This is a prophecy from the book of Hosea. So, Old Testament prophet. Somebody who um, heard from God and spoke, he foretold and foretold, told truth what was going on and truth what would happen. And it's a reference. This is a reference to how God brought his people out of Egypt, out of slavery. Remember, if you go back hundreds of years, the famous story of the Exodus, God's people were in slavery, right? Joseph, um, another Joseph, there's a... incredible link here. Another Joseph was taken in, um, into Egypt in, into slavery, Right? And then he rises to become a king, and then his family follows him down, so to speak, to um, get rid of uh, or to avoid a threat that is there. That threat is famine. Right? So all these stories here link up. So out of Egypt I called my son. This is a reference to God going into Egypt, so to speak, through Moses to bring his people out of slavery, to bring them up and out of Egypt and bring them back to the promised land where they would flourish. So let's catch these connections here. So just as God's people, right, Israel, um, went down into Egypt, that's Jacob and Joseph and the whole, whole family, just as they went down into Egypt, right, because there was a threat in their land, which was famine, well, they went down there and then they, they stayed there. Just like Jesus and his family went down into Egypt and stayed there because there was a threat in the promised land. See the parallels linking up. Now in the Exodus, years pass and the people then become slaves in Egypt because a new pharaoh rises up and they experience a trial there as slaves. So they go from a threat in the promised land to a trial in a strange land. And then they are eventually brought 
home in triumph. So it is with Jesus. Faces the threat, goes down into Egypt, stays there through the trial of being a refugee, being hunted and wanted, and then comes home in victory and triumph. You can see the movement there, and if you're tying this back into the very first sermon of the series, there's that movement down into darkness and despair and up into an invincible hope. So this is so cool. Here is what Matthew is getting at as he's telling the story this way. He's saying Jesus is the ultimate embodiment of Israel. Jesus is the true Israel, the true Son of God that enters into darkness and comes up to bring light to his people and to all the world. The whole history of Israel, Exodus included, all of it, all of it, from from day one on, It was shaped in a way that would lead to Jesus and that Jesus would ultimately fulfill. So cool. The Bible's, it's brilliant. It's brilliant. And then there's another Exodus connection in here that Matthew's just begging for us to see. Check this out. Let me read, uh, let's see, I'll start here on verse 16. He says, Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, He became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Now think about that for a moment. What's his plan? What's Herod's plan? It's to kill the male babies. Do you see the grim Exodus connection? It's in the terrible slaughter of these baby boys by a tyrant, right? This just highlights how unoriginal, how cliche, and how derivative evil is. It can never be truly creative. Herod stole his terrible move from whom? The Pharaoh. Go back, right? Remember when God's people were in slavery, and they're growing in number, Well, God's people are now a threat to the Pharaoh, right? There's the Pharaoh, anxiously pacing his palace, cruelly thinking about how he can keep control. And what's his scheme? To kill the the babies, the male babies. They have the midwives kill the male babies so then they won't be able to grow up an army and they won't take away his power. Herod, Pharaoh, our own broken schemes at work or even in our, in our own family to maintain power at the cost of others, sacrificing them on the altar of our own desires and wants. It's all there. So Herod repeats the sins of the past. It's a reference to Exodus chapter 1, verses 15 through 22. I mean, the parallels just line up just intensely. Guys, the Bible is so brilliant. We don't have time to get into all of the connections, but let me show one more. Well, before I do that, let me just explicitly say this. Jesus is, is the ultimate Moses, the truest and truer Moses, right? The one who goes deep into the heart of Egypt and then comes out to bring his people into light. I remember Moses was put in a basket, right? When the threat of, the, of killing the babies happened, he was put into a basket. And where does he go? He goes deeper into the heart of Egypt. He goes from a Hebrew home, get this, he goes from a Hebrew home into the very palace of the tyrant who wants to kill them all. 
And then what? He grows up and then God eventually has that one who went into the very heart of the darkness of Egypt to be the one, the redeemer, who would bring the people out into God's love and God's light. Jesus is the truer Moses who dove down into the very heart of darkness, this world, and into our own hearts to bring us up and out of slavery, to live with him, to love him, and to love each other well. So incredible. Another connection here. There's also a connection to exile in Babylon. This refers to the darkest period of God's people. When they were taken from their home, their city was destroyed. Everything they knew was lost and ripped from them because of their own idolatry and adultery, hurting God and hurting other people. And so these words in here, Rama and Rachel, uh, they have these deep links to the story. Rama is a place where the bad guys, the Babylonians, took, it's in Israel, they took God's people to Ramah, and it was kind of like um, a way station. It was like a concentration camp, honestly, uh, to put the people in, to prepare them to take them all the way to Babylon. So it was this terrible place where there was weeping, where there was death, where there was sadness, because the people of God were being ripped away from their homeland. And Rachel is a reference to the matriarch, um, the, the wife of, of, of Jacob, of, of Israel. And the idea here is that Rachel, this matriarch, is crying over the death of all of her descendants. That the, the nation of Israel is being killed and being ravaged. And so uh, the, one of the forebears is just weeping over the loss in the family tree. And that's a quote from Jeremiah 31.15. See the integrity of scriptures. It all comes together. It's so, so wonderful. Like his descendants, Jesus is going to experience exile and return. Jesus, exodus, redemption. Jesus, exile and return. Jesus, the true and greater Israel. Incredible. All right, let's look at another lesson or two uh, from this passage. Look at verse 19 and 20. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. Okay, so the tyrant dies sometime, sometime later, and God speaks to Joseph in a dream again. Now here's a question for you. Where is Joseph when he hears from God? What land is he in? He's in Egypt. He's in the land of loss. Do not overlook the profundity of that simple fact. He is in the land of loss. He's in Egypt. He's still a refugee. He's still in hiding. He's still wanted, and God speaks to him in those dark hours. God's love and God's care. God's plan and God's power reach into our loss. God speaks to us in the land of loss. He doesn't wait for us to come to the promised land. He doesn't wait for us to get all cleaned up and, and get made neat and make sure all of our stuff is together and make sure we're, we're, we're shining in, in white robes and there's no stain on us before he speaks to us. He comes to us in our land of loss. And, and he may do that through a dream. He does that. He's done that. 
But he does speak to us through his word, through his scriptures, while we are in our darkness. He speaks to us by the power of his spirit, moving through his people. That's his, his church. That's his community. God comes to us in our loss. And this is the great miracle of the incarnation, right? This is why at Christmas we talk about Emmanuel. God with us. God with us. He comes to us in our loss. He meets us in the point, in the place of pain. And Jesus not only engages us in our pain, but he actually enters into our pain. He was hunted. He was unwanted. He was unloved. He was unsafe. He felt the cold chill of this world in his lungs. He knows what it's like. And this just brings so much hope. God has jurisdiction. God has power and authority over the land of loss. He's not impotent to do something about it. There is no land of loss so remote, so barren, and so wrecked that he cannot enter into it and speak to you in whatever loss you are facing. He can speak into it and heal and bring you home. God speaks to us in the land of loss. Now, with the imminent threat of the tyrannical Herod gone, Joseph packs the family up and they head home, but not to the place that they were. Things are different. Look at verses 21 through 23. And he, Joseph, arose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in the place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in the city called Nazareth, so that... What was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled that he would be called a Nazarene. Well, when Herod died, his kingdom was split up. And one of his notoriously cruel sons, Archelaus, had the region of Judea, which included Bethlehem and Jerusalem. It's kind of like saying Alameda includes um, Pleasanton and Livermore. Right? It's a region, and then it includes these various cities. An apple doesn't fall far from the poison tree here, because Archelaus is, is just as cruel. Herod killed a number of his sons. In fact, Caesar said it was, it was better to be a pig than a son of King Herod because Herod would slaughter his sons before he would slaughter pigs. And his son picked up on his father's cruelty. His son was formed by how his father lived in the world. That's scary. So he was wicked. He was cruel. And, and Joseph is heading back, and God, again, in his journey on the way back, says, hey, warning, don't go back to the same area. Don't go to Judea because there's another cruel Herod sitting on the throne. Go back another way. So Joseph goes to um, Podunkville, right, to Nowheresville. He goes to a little place called Nazareth, right? It's like a little hillbilly town, okay? Nothing good comes out of Nazareth is the saying. Nobody knows about it, and if they do, they have nothing nice to say about this backwater obscure town, and it's in the region of Galilee, up by the Sea of Galilee. Now, it's there in obscurity that Jesus would be hidden. And there, under that cover, so to speak, Jesus grows up, he matures, he's trained in the Torah. And it's there in the land of Galilee that light first dawns, as Isaiah says, that Jesus enters into ministry and he heals and he, he, he pushes back the darkness, casts out demons, does all sorts of things. His ministry, the Messiahship, has, has begun in full to bless Israel and bless all the world. Now, 
we'll come back to that. I just want to open up one quick thing here because it's, it's helpful and it's good to know this stuff. Jesus is called the Nazarene. What's going on here is there's a bundle of prophecies that are put together in this one word. The word, we'll start with Netzer. Uh, Netzer and Nazir are two words that they think are being um, alluded to in this word Nazarene. Netzer is the Hebrew word for branch, like a shoot out from a tree. And the reference here is to being a branch or a root from the, the tree of David. In other words, an heir to the throne. The rightful heir to the throne because he comes out of that royal family tree. Now, Nazir is the Hebrew word for a person who's fully dedicated to God, gives almost everything up to, to, to follow this God. Okay? That's a Nazir. And the idea here is that Jesus is the Nazarene. He is the rightful heir, comes from the family line of David, royal lineage, and his life is fully dedicated to God. He is the humble, suffering, servant, branch king that has long been prophesied. Here's the cool thing. The land of loss not only became gain for Joseph and family, but that land of loss became gain for you, us, Steve, Susan, Pam, George, Hannah. It became gain for us. See, God uses our journey into the land of loss to bring blessing, to bring back blessing to others. God uses our journey into the land of loss to bring blessing back to others. It's not just for our own good. It's for our own good that he leads us through, through these valleys of the shadow of death as our shepherd. And it's for his glory, but it's also for the good of others. Because, because Jesus was a refugee from Herod, he could become our savior Because he was saved from Herod, he could die under Pilate at the right time as our sacrificial lamb. Because he was a refugee, because he was a stranger in a strange land, we, as those estranged from God, could be brought home and made his children. Our severe mercies become means of ministry to others. And some of us need to hear that because we don't understand why we've experienced the things we've experienced. But I can tell you this, not why they happen, but I know that God can use those to minister to other people who are currently in the valley of the shadow of death that you now know the topography of. You walked through that to know him better, to be healed yourself somehow in the mess and grief of it all, and that you might be a means of healing for other people. <clears throat> so, as we've been saying throughout the series, out of loss, God brings new life. <clears throat> God uses the land of loss as a severe mercy to bring us gain. God speaks to us in the land of loss. This is the summation. Here's the three points again, right back here. God uses the land of loss as a severe mercy to bring us gain. God speaks to us in the land of loss. He is God with us, right? Emmanuel. And God uses our journey into the land of loss to bring blessing back to others. Now, uh, I want to go back 
back to that Advent season um, some 10 years ago that I referenced earlier. Um, I was driving into the land of loss that day. I didn't know it. It was raining hard and fast. I was alone in my car and I was driving fast. And it was raining hard and I was crying hard. It all, it all just kind of blurred together. And, and that day I traveled into the land of loss, just driving up 680 here. Driving north, going back up and around to the hospital in Antioch. There, um, Marla, my, my wife, was in preterm labor with our first child, with our, our baby boy on the way. He was born prematurely, and he died on December 5th. And from the great heights of feeling blessed, from the great heights of, of expecting our, our first child, suddenly everything turned upside down and we found ourselves as strangers in the strange land of loss. And I don't, I don't pretend to understand why. I don't pretend to understand uh, you know, all of the what fors. This happened because of this divine calculus of it, of it all. And even if I did, it wouldn't have dried up the tears. You can have all the reasons in the world and you can still hurt and grieve, you know. Just a reminder when we care for people in grief, there's times for reasons. But to be with people in the hurt and the grief and offer them love versus easy answers that is a form of love. Um, I do know that in the midst of the loss, God put deep into my soul and my wife's soul the gravity of the gospel, of losing a son, the terrible cost of redemption, the tremendous blood red love of the cross. And more so, he put into our souls the gospel glory of Jesus opening the way to resurrection and eternal life. He put in us a gut-level hunger for hope and resurrection that he would restore these things. And I know he has brought beauty out of the ashes. I know out of those ashes we have all sorts of joys. We have the joy of, of Silas our second-born son, of Hadley, of, of Olivia. The loss is still a loss. But somehow there is redemptive gain. That loss is not si outside of God's redemptive work, is it? Ten years later, guys. Ten years later, the grief is there. But I can tell you that the hope is stronger than it has ever been. Because God knows what it is like to watch his son try and breathe and die. That the sons of men no more may die. 
that he might heal and restore and bring us home. Man, what a gospel. What good news we have. I don't care what kind of shiny thing this world tries to sell you. It won't touch the beauty and the goodness and the height and the depth of the hope we have in Christ. It cannot even touch it. I know God spoke to us in that land of loss through his word, through his people, through many of you who entered into our loss and pain and you sat and cried with us. And you were God in the flesh to us as the spirit of Christ moved in you. This is not in my notes, and I just, but I remember my brother Brett Iselhart, one of our elders. He just said, let's take a walk. We probably said three words for an hour. We walked, we cried, he hugged. We walked, we cried, he hugged. He entered into it. Jesus has entered into this world. The glory of Christmas. There's so much hope. But, it, but, it, but it's not cheap, it's not artificial because it acknowledges the hurt. I know that that journey into the land of loss has been used to bless others as my wife and I have sat with countless others in this congregation who have suffered the painful loss of miscarriage which so often goes silent and unacknowledged. And I know you're in here and you're struggling with it. God sees and I pray we get to see and walk alongside you. And it's allowed us to be able to sit and hurt with others and minister to them by the power of the Spirit. The love, the joy, the peace, and the hope of Christmas are all the more to us, poignant, bright, and real to our family after that advent of loss a decade ago. So friends, in closing, here are some ways to respond, some practices for us as Christmas people. We're Easter people and we're Christmas people. Here are some ways for us to practice this hope. One, remind yourself. Remind yourself that your losses are not outside of God's redemptive power and plan. You need to hear that daily from yourself and tell each other. God can use this pain, this absence, this job loss, this diagnosis. He can use this. It's not outside of his power and control. Second, tune your ears. Tune your ears to hear God's voice through Scripture and his people. Put yourself in the path of oncoming hope. Be in the word. Let him nourish you. Be in community. Let his spirit care for you through God's people so we can hear his voice. Don't pull away. Don't isolate in the pain. Enter into community. Enter into the word. And third, ask and seek how your wounds might help others heal. Harness your losses to be an agent of healing for others. That addiction, that depression, that betrayal, that grief, that shame, you do realize that God can turn that charcoal into the bright light of a diamond of healing for someone else. My friends, know that like a flight to Egypt that spared our Savior's life, God can steer your suffering and loss to bring unexpected 
gain. Christmas tells us that heaven is working wonderfully in our very human stories, stories full of threat and loss. And know this, if you're new to this church family, know that you don't have to be cleaned up and put together for God to speak to you. He's calling you. This Christmas is an appointment of destiny for you. The king comes to you in Egypt, in your land of loss, to bring about renewal, to fulfill his promises, to bring flourishing to this world. So may we have ears to hear him speak. May he give us hope-filled dreams. And may your journeys to the land of loss become avenues of blessing to the hurting world around you. Heavenly Father, uh, I want to thank you for your grace. I want to thank you for your love. I want to thank you for the great hope that we have, Lord. <laughs> and though there are tears um, on my face and uh, um, there's, there's grief in me and others, Lord, may the joy run deeper than the grief. May it be wider and more profound than the sorrow. And it's because of Christmas that it can be. We love you. Amen.